Welcome to the Beyond Border Scotland podcast. I'm Alan Little, and in this episode, we take you on a fascinating and deeply moving journey through the heart of South Africa's history and its enduring spirit of resistance and renewal. We're honoured to have with us Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul, a former jailmate of Nelson Mandela and ex-Prime Minister of the Western Cape Province. Ambassador Rasul's personal experiences and insights offer a unique window into the struggles and triumphs of South Africa's journey towards freedom and democracy. Joining Ambassador Rasul is Oscar Guardiolo Rivera, Professor of Human Rights and Political Philosophy at Birkbeck University of London who draws parallels between South Africa's history of resistance, liberation and reconciliation with that of his native South America. We're also delighted to have South African artist Peter Sachs with us. Peter's extraordinary multidimensional exhibition, Resistance, features 54 resistance figures from across the globe. His art captures the essence of struggle and resilience, resonating deeply with the themes of our discussion. Together, we'll delve into the rich tapestry of South Africa's history, exploring the concept of resistance not just as a reaction to oppression, but as a powerful force for change and renewal. We'll discuss the impact of both individuals and movements that have shaped the course of history, both in South Africa and globally. So, whether you're a history enthusiast, an admirer of art and culture, or someone intrigued by the power of resistance and the process of renewal, this episode promises to be an enlightening and inspiring experience. Let's join our conversation with Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul, Professor Oscar Guardiola Rivera, and artist Peter Sachs. Let's talk first to Peter. Peter, I can hear you, but it's difficult for me to see you. Um, but tell us, um, first of all, why are you. Is he there? He's yes, he's right behind you. Aha. Yeah. Peter, I can see you now. Um, what drew you to the, to the theme of resistance for this remarkable exhibition that, is, is, that we can all see at uh, Summerhall? Um, thank you, Alan. I'll respond to that in just a moment. Could I just very briefly preface this with some thanks and some regrets? I truly am sorry not to be with you all. I, I love being in Traquair. I love that audience. And greetings to everybody. And many thanks. Uh, for hosting this to Mark Muller and to Beyond Borders. I also wanted to just thank Summerhall um, from Robert McDowell to the entire staff there and um, Andrew Brown and uh, Callum Stark for having made the actual mounting of the exhibition possible, um, along with a number of others who've just been so supportive about this. Um, so Mark Muller, uh, thank you and everyone else. And. Um, I'm honored to be on this uh, panel, um, Alan and um, Ambassador Rasul, uh, a great honor. I should mention that uh, Abraham Rasul and I share the same birthday, uh, 15th of July, although he's a lot younger than I am. I was also <laughs> born on the 15th of July. Whoa. <laughs> Not possible. Three of us? Well, then, it's very admirable that three cancers are being so um, extroverted as to appear on this. Uh, in any event, uh, it's a great honor. And um, what drew me to this was my being in the United States as somebody who had come here from South Africa, having left South Africa in 1970, uh, having been involved in the anti-apartheid uh, struggle in 1969 and 1970, having been a friend of and colleague of Stephen Biko's, and growing up at a time when images of figures like Mandela or Tambo or Sisulu were actually banned so that you could not see their faces in any public venues or media and um, you'd be punished for even owning one in your home. And so the notion of these faces that have been somehow repressed along with their language and had been imprisoned um, was something I wanted to revisit during the period in the United States that seemed to me frighteningly echoing aspects of, of, of apartheid and white supremacist um, behavior during the Trump uh, era um, and Black Lives Matter. There were police shootings. There were authoritarian regimes rising all over the world. Um, and the sense of the need for resistance on a personal as well as a communal level was very pressing uh, in my mind. And I was drawn to somehow conjure the spirits and the presence of these great figures who originally I began, Alan, with 
um, figures of the American um, struggle for abolition and slavery during the Civil War, uh, people like Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. And I was aware that they had been an influence on the South African struggle, so that people like Mandela obviously were aware of what that struggle and continuing struggle in the 1960s uh, were on the part of the next you know, much later generation, Martin Luther King and uh, Rosa Parks and the figures of that in the 1950s and 60s. So this was all pressing in on me as a desire to make some kind of gesture that would um, not just represent, but somehow then work with the images to uh, revere them in a way, hallow them, spend time with them, provide texture for them, embed them in a matrix of collaged materials that were unique to them so that I was preserving something material about traces of them. Uh, so they weren't just words on a page or inspiring quotes, but they actually became figures that I could put on the wall and surround myself and then presumably surround others by sharing those images out in the world. And then I should say that the entire project began to expand once I had established a number of these figures, I began to be aware of how much I had been influenced by other figures of resistance, as Mark was saying a moment ago, political as well as cultural, um, people who had fought against kinds of repressive conformism. So it included women, it went back to suffragettes, it went um, to other countries. I got very moved by um, the figures such as Nasreen Sotudeh, who's in Iran and has been in prison and on hunger strikes many times, or her colleague Farhad Meisami, um, but also figures in China, in South America. Um, I got interested in the figures who had resisted Franco. So everybody who across the world uh, over a period of over 100 years had been putting their lives on the line, and it included Russians, so that at the time of the Ukraine uh, experience 2014, and then again, I was very drawn to go back to my heroes from the Stalinist period, like Osip Mandelstam, Anna Akhmatova, who were sort of forerunners of figures today, like uh, Alexei Navalny. So, um, so, so the project became truly global and extends to Scotland, to Ireland, um, to uh, other other countries. And um, that's a little bit of the background. Can I just um, ask you then, happy, uh, Peter, can I ask you what, because uh, you've obviously given a lot of thought to the to resistance movements uh, in many diverse contexts. Uh, are, yes. there, are there identifiable traits that are, are common to them all? Um, I believe so. I think that there's a combination which is an extremely strong sense of what an individual human being is and what the dignity of an individual human being is that should not be trampled on or compromised. And that strong interiority, wherever it comes from, whether it's in the person's personal background or in what they've read, you know, I'm thinking of Mandela reading Gandhi. Um, I'm thinking of Gandhi reading Ruskin. I think of people who just assemble an interiority um, that they think of as uh, really worth preserving. And then, and this is the other crucial thing, feeling how that interior individuality that is almost sacred, I mean, there's often a religious dimension to these figures, whether they're orthodox of some religion or another, but a sense that there is something um, really worth fighting for, but that here's the point that connects to the community at large and that there is no preserving one's dignity without caring for and fighting for um, the dignity, the well-being, the freedom of others. And it's that movement between the inward and the outward that I think is one of the common denominators uh, for these figures, no matter where they come from. And that was a lot of the motive in making this exploration was just to try to find out, you know, feel my way sort of even through my fingers into what it was that resonates 
in these in these people uh, for our present moment, which seem to be calling on similar kinds of capacities. And this obviously has its, this conviction that you you have has its roots in the young man who left South Africa. Uh, very much so. And um, I grew up there. I was born on the 15th of July um, in Port Elizabeth, but um, grew up in Durban. And by 1970, I had left the country and I had been involved, uh, as I mentioned before, Steve Rico was a friend and colleague in Durban. And uh, by 1970, I was unsure of my path forward. The uh, Black Student Organization had formed. It seemed as if the multiracial alliance of the National Union of South African Students at that time was splintering. And I became unsure of, of, of my best way forward. And I left the country, and uh, partly for education, but also for these political reasons. Okay. And um, they marked my um, attempt to somehow pay homage to those who remained and struggled. Just one quick thing about your exhibition, uh, Peter. Can we see it online, or do we have to go to Samahol itself? Well, you can see it online. Um, the advantage of going to Samahol, where there is a partial representation of the works that were originally displayed here in the United States, there were originally 90. I've made over 100 of these, and they're still ongoing, as I encompass you know, other countries, other resistors. But uh, the advantage of going to Summerhall is that the works are very physical in the sense that they are very textured. There's a lot of fabric, and it's important to me from a point of view of resistance. In other words, they're not just a flat, um, rec easily recognizable image. The, the figures are embedded in a matrix, just as they were in life. Of, of conditions and there's scraps of clothing and buttons and there's motifs that I think one really wants to feel touched by and to touch in a sense, even though they're now behind glass. But the physicality of the texture is crucial to my notion of how we empathize with these figures. And so it's much better to see them in person. Okay. Also, Peter. they can then speak to each other yeah. as they do in, in real life. I mean, Nasreen Sotudeh, while in prison in Iran was, um, you know, keeping Mandela in mind. And there's this international sense of resistance that I think is a kind of bloodstream that I'm trying to um, manifest. Okay, Peter, thank you very much indeed. We'll let you go. Uh, I will urge everybody in this uh, venue to go to Summer Hall and uh, see your exhibition. We'll let you go. Thank you very much indeed for joining us and for getting up early. <laughs> No, not at all. But listen, um, could I just say uh, one thing about the images that you're going to show? I was hoping that uh, you've got the Mandela behind you, but if I could take one more minute, if somebody could just put up Stephen Biko's um, image. Can we do that? Just to rem Let's just Ooh. remind people, Steve Biko died in a police cell in Port Elizabeth, I think, in 1977. Yeah. We can see him now, um, Peter. Okay. Well, what I'd like people to just notice is that there's many different fabrics that are embedded in that picture. So there's cloth that literally comes from India and Africa and Europe. And I'm trying to create kind of a global medium in which to situate him uh, so that he's not just a, a, you know, the standard iconic figure that we can recognize, but somebody who's been re- um, imagined and brought into this in, into this new matrix. And um, he, he, there's an indomitable spirit who said, you're going to have to kill me if you want to uh, keep treating me this way, and whose collection of writings is called I Write What I Like. And um, I, I, the other figure that just before I leave, um, yeah, there's Stephen. And you can see him as a young man looking straight at you. But up in the top left-hand corner, you can see him as a somewhat older figure, so that the idea is that there's a kind of life being lived within these portraits, and there are these scraps of materials. I want to just say that a lot of them are purposely painted over in layers, as if they are layers to a human existence, and one has to almost feel one's way through them, just as he seems to come through them in order to reach us. So there's a kind of resistance in the materiality itself of the representation that I think is part of the, 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 the sort of struggle of seeing and being seen. And the last one would be Akhmatova, 
And then I know you've got a full program ahead, so I won't. But there she is, Anna Akhmatova, the greatest, uh, along with Osip Mandelstam, of the poet resistors uh, to Stalin. Uh, Mandelstam, of course, dying in the Gulag in 1938 after having written an incredible poem denouncing Stalin. It would be as if, except much worse then, you were to write a poem absolutely denouncing Putin as a butcher. And uh, so he uh, suffered and they were very close friends and she wrote a beautiful series of poems um, and she paid tribute to him. She outlived him but was aware of his exile and there's a moment in a poem where she said, fear and the muse take turns guarding the room in which the banished exiled poet lives. And that movement between fear and inspiration of the artist is I think something uh, I would highlight too. And she's the one who would stand in front of the prison. Her son, her one of her husbands, were executed, uh, imprisoned. And one of the people in the long line said, can you write about this? And she said, yes, I can. And that's that um, indomitable, even though she knew she was banned and uh, could not be published in her lifetime uh, and was harassed. And in the picture, those bars, those black bars, are suggesting something like a prison, mm. uh, even as the stripes then go into her, uh, what she's actually, in a sense, wearing. Well, so those are just a few notes. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much for giving us such a powerful and moving start to this event. Okay, well, thank you all uh, for being there. And uh, I wish everybody well, and I greet the audience. And again, greetings to the panel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, can I keep watching from where I am? I think you can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so just so take me off and greetings. Uh, <laughs> Ambassador, just looking at Steve Beekle's face there, it's you. It's a very powerful uh, reminder of what a fantastic contribution he might have made. No, I think that it doesn't detract from the co contribution he had made. Yeah. Because resistance in South Africa and anywhere else is like a relay race. We had the Gandhi in 1906 giving us a layer of resistance that said the other is inviolable, so don't do violence to them. We had Mandela picking up that pattern in the 1950s and doing defiance campaign, passive resistance, defiance of apartheid. We had Steve Biko after the jailing of Mandela and the Sharpeville massacre coming and saying that if we're going to be liberated, the precondition for liberation is the liberation of our minds. It's the embrace of our identity. It's not to be ashamed of who we are and to not denigrate the colonial powers, but to energize our own identity. And then the generation of the UDF comes along, picks up that pattern and runs the final race for the release of Mandela, the negotiated transition, and then the governance um, in a non-racial democracy. So it's really, I mean, Steve Biko, the race would have been incomplete had there not been that runner um, in the race. And um, we may have been disqualified. So I think that was a seminal contribution. Yeah. I'm remembering as you speak that I once went to the Soweto Cricket Oval to watch England play a, a one-day friendly against the Soweto Select, and Mandela turned up. Yeah. Unexpectedly, yeah. and you could see the, the sort of pride in the, in the faces of these young cricketers. And Mandela went into the correspondence tent, and they didn't know what to say to him, the cricket correspondents. <laughs> and one of them said, did you play sport as a young man, sir? <laughs> and Mandela said, oh. If I told you what I did as a young man, I might end up behind bars. <laughs> <laughs> it was extraordinary. And, but, but let's go back to your own, your own youth ambassador. You grew up in District 6, which was... Just tell the story of District 6. It was a place where South Africans of all races lived, lived side by side. There were a few places, like District 6, Fitas in Johannesburg, Meadow, um, um, etc., etc., that defied the segregation of the time and where people just all came together, lived side by side. And for the architects of apartheid, this was the antithesis 
of what they stood for that people of, who are different cannot coexist. And so they declared the area in which I grew up as a white area, a white group area. Um, and by 1972, I was 10 years old, born on the 15th of July. I was um, 10 years old and came home from school and my parents had taken all our furniture out of the house and had placed it on a pavement because we had gotten notice that the bulldozers were arriving and we couldn't save a house, but we needed to save our possession. My father frantically running around trying to find both a house and a truck. And that's how we were dumped then on what was called the Cape Flats. On the other side of Table Mountain. On the other side of Table Mountain, we were removed from its shadow. And so that was the earliest memory of um, political awakening um, in me seeing that because here were grown human beings that we idealized. They were everything to us reduced to tears, absolutely humiliated, unable to explain the concept of a white area, unable to explain why we were not worthy of living there, unable to explain how we were going to make a living because it will now take two buses and a train for my father to get to work. Um, and so this was the reality. So apartheid was separation. Apartheid was discrimination. But apartheid was also dispossession. And if you don't hold all three of that in your mind, you don't understand the complexity of what we were dealing with. The, the, the resistance movement that you joined in your early 20s and the early 1980s, it, it looked, I mean, I'm old enough to remember that period as well, and it looked pretty bleak. What did the resistance movement that you joined feel like? Because the ANC was banned. The ANC was banned. The political leaders were either in exile or in prison. My parents' generations had the memory of the massacre at Sharpville, the jailing of Mandela and a whole cohort of people, the fleeing of activists and so forth. So they were the generation of fear. And it took an entire 10 to 12 years for another generation who had not witnessed that to find courage again. And so I was in that generation, went to high school in 1976, tasted my first tear gas and rubber bullets, and then was the leader of the 100 schools in Cape Town called the Committee of 81, and we organized a 12-week school boycott, which was basically boycotting the inferior education by day by teaching ourselves in the afternoons after school, 12 weeks of school boycott, and then the formation of the United Democratic Front, which this month, 40 years ago, were, was born in Cape Town, the United Democratic Front. And it was the most amazing formation because it showed a human potential to transgress their own divisions. So it was a deliberate attempt to join across the color lines. And so the news as that Peter Sachs speaks about which was largely representative of white university students, joined with the Azaso, the black university students. The Muslims and the Christians joined together despite doctrinal differences. And we even set ourselves the task of going to our Jewish fellow students and saying, you'd better form a Jews for justice. Otherwise, Jews will forever be identified with Israel-Palestine, and Jews will forever be identified with the Jewish Board of Deputies who were nominally white at that time. And Jews for Justice came in, and we went across the color lines. We went across the religious lines. We went across every barrier that was there. And, and so we understood the, that resistance is at its most powerful when you find the merest touch points with everyone else who's affected negatively by apartheid. I, I'm, well, I went to see Desmond Tutu speak at St Paul's Cathedral in London in 1984, and this is a question really about international public opinion. He was on his way to Sweden to pick up the Nobel Peace Prize, and the South Africans wouldn't give him a passport. He had to travel on a re, uh, UN refugee document, and um, they told him he wasn't a South African, that he had to choose which black homeland he was a citizen of. And uh, so he refused to do that, and the UN helped him get to Sweden. And he told the story about being on retreat, a Christian retreat in a forest in Northern California from the pulpit of St. Paul's, 2,000 people there. And he said, I was walking at five in the morning and meditating and I met an old lady. She said he was, she was a woodcutter's widow. And she said, you're Desmond Tutu. I include you in my prayers every evening. 
And then he sort of threw his arms open and said, I am being prayed for in a forest in Northern California by a woodcutter's widow. What chance does P.W. Butter stand against that? <laughs> <laughs> and we all understood what he meant. We, yeah. we, the Absolutely. importance of mobilising international moral Absolutely. decency. Were you conscious of that at the time? I think we always felt the support of the global anti-apartheid movement. But it wasn't just a support. It was willing us to our finest. Because in a struggle for survival, you can make your values malleable. You could want a non-racial future, but mobilize race. You could want a united future, but exacerbate division. You could want a peaceful outcome, but harness violence. And so there was this constant dialectic between our desperation on the ground and the idea that we were an experiment of the human soul for the world. And that responsibility weighed enormously. We were always, as the UDF, driven to find the most creative ways. And so, so, so to, to, we knew the need to be radical, but not fundamentalist. To be revolutionary, but not extreme. And in a, in a sense, to be militant, but not violent. And those fine lines were absolutely the watchwords that we needed to navigate a struggle. But there was violence um, as part of the struggle. Did, did you despair when you saw the necklacings, for example? No, I think, and, 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 and that's why you would find Desmond Tutu yeah. throwing himself between an angry yeah. mob yeah. and a police informer when they were about to burn him. Yeah. You will find Muslim leaders at the Muslim funeral throwing their own bodies over a policeman who shot at the people, defending his right to live. And, but we couldn't be all over. Mm. But it was the moral authority and the moral leadership that kept South Africa, despite every temptation, from the brink of violence, mm. outright violence, mm. um, and, 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 and keeping us within the spirit of what we called Ubuntu, a human spirit that says, I am because you are. Yeah, doesn't introduce to say, uh, we, we are connected, I can never be rich if you're poor, I can never be free if you're enslaved. Uh, Oscar, when you listen to um, the ambassador speaking about his experience, are there parallels and you can draw with South America? Very many, and not just the incredible magical realist coincidence that we were all born on the 15th of July. What are the odds of that? Uh, when, when I was a student at uh, Jesuit school in, in uh, Bogota, in Colombia, the Jesuits had their uh, research center for popular culture uh, beside the school. So we would all go there to uh, talk to our, uh, our teachers, and uh, we would see on the walls uh, posters of the resistance movements in Namibia, uh, and uh, uh, which were part of the uh, the struggle, and of course the Cubans were there. Uh, so for us, being very young, uh, it was absolutely clear that what was known back then in the uh, the, the second half of the 20th century as the tricontinentalism. Uh, that spirit of the tricontinental, of the solidarity between the peoples of the South, of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, that's what became our uh, uh, political spirituality. And uh, so when, uh, when uh, uh, I, uh, uh, together with other students, formed the student movement in the 1990s, which paved the way towards uh, peace talks, the peace talks that succeeded uh, uh, in 2016, what, uh, uh, what, what was driving us was precisely that kind of political spirituality. While our law professors, our white, very racist law professors, wanted us to read Carl Schmitt, the uh, uh, Third Reich uh, jurist, we were reading Franz Fanon. Uh, and uh, uh, that the latter was our biography. It was our own uh, historical uh, experience. It is not a coincidence that the current vice president of Colombia, uh, Francia Marquez, is precisely the leader of uh, the Proceso de Comunidades Negras, the black, uh, uh, the, the black uh, anti-racist movement, which mm -hmm. has been active in Colombia for decades. Mm -hmm. Before the election, 
she uh, uh, gave a talk together with Angela Davis. And uh, there you begin to see something that for the current youth in Colombia is absolutely clear, that political spirituality. And that political spirituality uh, was uh, also present when the youth in Colombia took to the streets in 2021. Uh, to uh, fight against uh, police oppression. Mm -hmm. That's Ambassador, I want to fast forward in time because we've, we've got a lot to get through in a limited time. 1993, Mandela's been out of prison for three years. The white regime is dragging its feet on, a, on the transition. There's a lot of violence, there's a lot of resistance from the extreme white right as well. Um, and they're trying to sabotage the transition. Uh, some, South Africa sometimes seems to be tinkering on the brink of civil war and then there's the assassination of Chris Hani. That was a pivotal moment for the resistance movement and for the, tr for the transition, wasn't it? That was the day that Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as president because the assassination by a Polish right-wing supremacist of white supremacy in South Africa was going to destroy the entire negotiating process, um, the hope that we had, the faith that we were building um, up, the non-racialism that had been engendered deliberately by liberation leaders from the time the Freedom Charter said South Africa belongs to all who live in it black and white in 1955. That was the day that South Africa stood on the brink. And that was the day that F.W. de Klerk realized that he did not have authority over this nation. And he called Nelson Mandela. And he said, Mr. Mandela, could you address the nation? And Mr. Mandela said, only if you give me a date of the election to announce tonight. That was the genius. That was a genius moment. That was the genius moment that he basically used the sense of brinkmanship strategically in order to exact the election date and to go out and on all television stations and the radio stations that night appealed for calm and said, we are having an election in this period. 27th of April, 1994. 27th of April, 1994. Let, and it comes from this whole African saying that says to us in the struggle and in that moment, an African saying that says, your anger is hot, but it cannot cook. Mandela made his anger cook, got the election date, and channeled that energy, that anger, into a constructive path towards not only the election, but laid the template of governance and laid the foundation for a process of some kind of reckoning called the TRC. We can, I want to come on to that, the idea of transitional justice in a second, but uh, was it on the same day or was it slightly afterwards that Mandela also very, very visibly uh, gave credit to a white Africana woman whose, whose evidence caught the guy who killed uh, Chris Hani? And that was the genius yeah. of Nelson Mandela. Some people think he's this benign old man who <laughs> suffered so much. Et this man was a strategic genius. Yeah. He knew he had moral authority, but he also knew that that only gave him leverage. It didn't make him your favorite grandfather. It gave him leverage. But the lesson he taught, because he felt how visceral the potential for anti-white hatred was that day, he needed to produce a white hero to emphasize the lesson we were taught throughout our lives that whites are as capable of being forces for good and blacks were as capable of being forces for evil. And it really confused the hell out of us <laughs> because we'd have loved a struggle that was black and white and it kept on moving us into this gray area in which we needed to look at every individual person, every white person and ask the question, are you good or bad? and give you the benefit of the doubt. 
And that laid the foundation for the great reconciliation yeah. that we were trying. Let's talk about reconciliation and transitional justice, Oscar, because um, the, one of the things that keeps oppressive regimes in power is fear. The fear of what will happen if they lose power. Will they go to prison? Will they be killed? And it keeps that fear keeps dictators in power. What role has transitional justice or, or truth and reconciliation played in South America? Huge. Uh, of course, again, the example is uh, what is happening in, in Colombia, uh, particularly the uh, role being played by uh, something we invented called the Special Peace Jurisdiction. As part of the 2016 uh, peace accords between the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia and the government, uh, the, there was this idea of creating a tribunal which is, sits at the same level as the Supreme Court and the Constitutional Court. Uh, this uh, uh, tribunal, which uh, has a women's majority, and that, 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 that is very, very important, uh, is uh, tasked with uh, uh, not only investigating uh, uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, in particular, uh, doing so uh, from a sort of internal uh, viewpoint, but also precisely to facilitate transition. Transition is not a turning of the page, is not, is not forgetting about it, uh, uh, about the, the injustices that occur, but actually about finding remedies so that uh, uh, the injustice does not continue. Because that's the, that's the thing with, uh, with war and uh, uh, racial oppression. And what was happening in Colombia uh, was uh, not just a counterinsurgency war, in fact, it wasn't a counterinsurgency war, what was happening was also uh, a racialized war. And if you look at the statistics, it, that it becomes very clear that the communities that were targeted by the far right wing paramilitary were all of them, uh, most of them indigenous and, uh, uh, and black. So the idea is how can we make sure that those communities flourish economically, socially and politically so that they have a voice which they have never had uh, in the countries of uh, Latin America. And in that respect, the example of uh, South Africa, both the successes and uh, the limitations have been absolutely crucial uh, for us. Mm. Uh, we're still struggling with that. But uh, just to, to finish uh, uh, the, the point, this is not just a South American thing. Uh, you must uh, uh, recall that uh, for all his hatred or his apparent hatred of Hispanics, Donald Trump was clearly inspired by the Latin American strongmen. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean the uh, military of the Southern Cone, but the civilians such as our former president, uh, Alvaro Uribe Vélez, who, uh, uh, or Rios Montt in Central America. These people who made a very peculiar transition so that they wouldn't appear as uh, uh, the fascists they are, uh, but rather as defenders of democracy and defenders of, of the people. Mm. Uh, this is the reason why the people keep watch of uh, the peace agreements, and that's why the youth uh, took to the streets in 2021. Let me ask you about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Ambassador. Um, this was a huge thing for the South African people to undertake, because what Bishop Tutu, as chairman of the commission, was saying to them was, I am asking you to forego your right to justice. You cannot seek justice for the people you lost, for the loved ones you lost. What you can, what, what you can receive instead is the truth about what happened to them. The victims and the survivors of the uh, 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 relatives and loved ones of the victims were not asked to forgive, but they were asked to abandon their hunt for justice. The perpetrators were not asked for contrition, they were not asked to say sorry, not asked to apologize, they were simply asked to tell the truth in return for a lifelong amnesty. That was a huge thing to ask people to do, wasn't it? I think neither Bishop Tutu nor Nelson Mandela asked people to forego justice. You must remember the justice at that moment that we inherited was the Nuremberg justice, absolute judicial justice that persists still today when you find someone who was linked to a Nazi, you go after him today still. Mm -hmm. We knew that that was a zero-sum game. So we said, let's forego absolute justice, judicial justice, but let us do transitional justice, the justice that takes you from the harder way we are 
to the better life that we want. Let's go for, for restorative justice. Don't ask for compensation. Let us restore to you your human dignity. Let us restore to you your human rights. And let us progressively restore to you your human needs. And so it was the redefinition of justice mm. that is the marvel in the world. Because what Europe and the West had in their imagination was Nuremberg. Mm. And we needed to do an advance on Europe and the West. And that's where we invented a new form. Because it was only that form of justice that could lead to reconciliation. When, and truth was more important because for an African, not knowing where the body is, where it was buried, in which shallow grave, was the greatest non-closure to your trauma. Burial is so important because of the power of ancestry. You, you can't appeal to ancestry if you don't know where they are. And so in the African imagination, a policeman coming and saying, not sorry necessarily, but I buried your son on that square in that area. And then a program of internment, taking the body and dignifiedly burying the body is the absolute closure that anyone could have in, in Africa. It's far more important than an apology and far more valuable than any monetary compensation. We were talking earlier, I went to see a woman called Joyce Umtumkulu in uh, Port Elizabeth, actually, the same place where Steve Biko was killed. And she had, she, her son, her 21-year-old student activist son, had disappeared at some point in the 1980s. Mm. She didn't know whether he was in prison or alive or dead. And she found out on the day Mandela was released that her son was dead. So her neighbours are all singing and dancing in the streets and she's finally got the confirmation that she's never going to see him again. And she said to me, you know, if Bishop Tutu himself were to walk into the, my sitting room here and get down on his knees, if my dead mother were to come back from the grave and get down on her knees and say, Joyce, it's enough, you must forgive, I wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, and she never found out where her son was because his body was burned and the bones were tipped into a river. And she was still asked, she was, she was asked by Bishop Tutu, please accept that the, the men who killed your son will go unpunished. Please accept that they will be having a braai in their back garden um, at the weekend. And that was it. That, that's what I mean by a big thing to ask, no. to accept this kind of justice. No, I, 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 I think that the sacrifices that South Africans were asked to make during the transition and after is often more difficult than the sacrifices we made during the struggle for apartheid. Because during the struggle of apartheid, there was a clarity. We were black, they were white, they had the, the instruments of repression, they could do with us what they want to, but we had the right to resist. Mm. And the resistance was what gave us dignity. Mm. And if we perish in the cause of resistance, we are heroes. Mm. We go to the afterlife. Um, with all our boxes ticked. The, the sacrifices from the transition onwards is not intuitive. Mm. You're asking people to go against their very nature. But it is more heroic for Mrs. Mtumkulu to even say that she can't find the resources of forgiveness in her. And, and, and we, we can't demand it of her. But there were sufficient people who could find the resources and the closure for forgiveness in order to make South Africa work. You know, Bertolt Brecht in his play Galileo, he says, unhappy is the land that needs a hero. Heroes don't emerge where there's happiness. Eldridge will tell you, the Swedes are very happy. There are very few heroes. <laughs> because they've got nothing to rise up against. We have four Nobel Peace Prize warriors because we have so much going against us. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the unfortunate thing is that the Mrs. Mtumkulus and them have to live with that emptiness. Maybe we could have helped her had we found the body, had we given it the dignified closure that it required. She and those were the sacrifices. I just want to tell if you, I, if I may, Alan, just, yes. just very quickly, it's, it's such a, an honor uh, for me to be 
on the same stage uh, as, uh, as Ibrahim. Uh, you just reminded me of uh, what I thought when I was told back in 2005 that I could not uh, uh, stay in the country uh, or else I would be killed. So I had to, I had to leave. And, and Uribe was uh, president for uh, almost 12 years. He continued to be a, 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 so I never, I never went back. I couldn't. What I was, what I had in mind was precisely uh, Brecht's piece and uh, a uh, part of a play by uh, uh, Franz Fanon, uh, in which uh, and this, you know, resonates with uh, uh, what we just uh, heard from uh, from America, uh, a piece in which he makes a crucial distinction between uh, uh, the uh, uh, forensic and pedantic precision of the law, uh, the manichaeism that uh, tells you you're good, they're bad, and uh, what he calls, uh, together with uh, a German uh, wonderful filmmaker, Alexander Kluge, uh, fantastic precision. Fantastic precision is that which allows you to suspend your judgment. And I arrived in this country with that spirit. I must suspend judgment so that I will not be reduced to silence and zero, so I can continue to protest. Mm. And uh, teaching here, uh, uh, I would like to think that's uh, what myself mm. and many other Colombian exiles have done. I wanted to get on to the question of what happens when resistance movements get, get, power, get into power, which is a mm. part of your experience too, but we're running out of time, so, and I've hogged it long enough, so I'll take some questions from the audience, if I may. There's a lady down here. Is there anybody nearer the microphone in the meantime? We've got five minutes left. Yes, right front row. To your left, to your left. Thank you for what has been truly moving. Having spent time with him in Edinburgh, could I ask you to reflect a little on the contribution of Dennis Goldberg? Very quickly, Dennis Goldberg is one of the icons of non-racialism. The fact that a white Jewish person went to Robin, not to Robin Island because he was on a separate jail for whites. Even the jails were segregated. <laughs> that he spent his 26 years in prison is probably the greatest contribution to my non-racialism. Had I not known of a Dennis Goldberg, had I not known of a Joe Slovo and the many Jews who were part of the struggle, the many white people, the women's movement for peace, the black sash. Black South Africa would have had every right to repel racism with counter-racism. Instead, what we did was that a Dennis Goldberg enabled us to see good in white people and that we don't have a monopoly of good. We may have a, mon a greater victimhood but that there were people who then may not have had the same victimhood that they were discriminated against, that they were dispossessed, that they were separated. They did not share that victimhood, but in them was a humanity that said, my dignity is incomplete if I don't fight for the dignity of my fellow citizens. Which is and Ubuntu. So, that's Ubuntu. So Ubuntu. That's absolutely Ubuntu. And so Dennis Goldberg was the barrier between blacks being non-racial or blacks being racial? Yes, sir. Yes, there's a depressing um, evidence of people who've been repressed very heavily for many, many years. In fact, the, re the, the repression has gone on through generations. Um, if we look at Zimbabwe and Mugabe, how those who had been oppressed, once they finally achieved liberation, go on to have rather a checkered career of repression themselves. I want to take one yeah. question after this, but uh, would you like to, Oscar, would you like to address that? The question, the question comes back to uh, the question that Alan wanted to mm. ask us. In fact, what happens when uh, uh, oppressed movements achieve power? Well, sometimes what happens is a repetition, you know, counter-racism, a repetition of oppression. Look at Nicaragua. Look at Nicaragua now. You know, it's, it's such a shame uh, and so, uh, so, sh so, so awful to see Daniel Ortega imprisoning his own, uh, his own uh, uh, colleagues, his own revolutionary colleagues. But then you have the counterexample. 
Look at what is happening in Colombia. Very difficult to be in power for uh, a, a, a resistance movement. Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez are facing uh, still the same forces that they were facing before. They are still alive. They are still very much there. But they're trying to do so in a way that does not perpetuate uh, the violence that they themselves were part of uh, in the past. And that's the task. There is no uh, uh, silver, silver bullet uh, solution. There is no recipe as to how to do that but to keep on trying, not to repeat the same identifications between uh, us and them. That's what keeps the hope alive. Ambassador. I think that, you know, we're dealing with a situation in South Africa in which 15 years after Nelson Mandela, Thabo Mbeki, Nelson Mandela was reconciling um, and to a fault um, that he didn't drive the reconstruction part as hard as the reconciliation part, but it was all how we paced it. Thabo Mbeki was eccentric about his ideas, but both of them not corrupt at all. I think what followed was a deep state capture and corruption in South Africa. Under Zuma. Under Jacob Zuma. The question, you know, movements, great movements, they rise and they fall. The question is often, was it murder or suicide? I think in South Africa we're suing, uh, seeing a suicide being staged unless we can get to the ICU very quickly. Yeah. Um, but I want to, do, uh, to say this. The unfortunate thing about both Zimbabwe and South Africa is that this is not the validation of white supremacism, the I told you so moment. Mm. Just like each manifestation must be judged on its own merits, we have to maintain that consistency. White supremacists in South Africa now come out of the woodwork with a moral authority that they reclaim to say, we told you so, blacks can't govern, blacks are venal, blacks are this. And I think that we've got to maintain this, that what we are seeing in South Africa is a human phenomenon. It may be institutionalized um, lobbying in the USA um, and stealing with fingerprints in South Africa, but I do think this is a human phenomenon and not necessarily a, a, a color phenomenon. I, want to, I just want to echo what Oscar said earlier. It's a, I, I hugely enjoy all the events I chair at this wonderful festival, but this has been a very special one, and it's been a great honor for me to share a platform with you two. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.